Welcome to A Crash Investigation, the podcast, the show we dissect all things A Crashes. I am your host, Zonaka Kimberley, and in this episode, we will be discussing Delta Airlines Flight 191, the crew, the crash, the investigation. But before we continue with this episode, do not forget to follow us on the platform that you're listening to us on and subscribe to our YouTube channel called Air Crash Investigation, the podcast. So without wasting any more of your time, seeing as though this is going to be a long episode, let us get into it. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Gumble. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. U.S. Airways plane loses power and then makes an emergency landing on the Hudson River. The mystery of Malaysian Airlines Flight 37. One of the largest and safest passenger jets ever made simply disappears off the road. They're flying through, they saw flight level 100, which is 10,000 feet. I think that was a point where we went from we have some time to figure this thing out to like, we might not be able to save us ourselves. Delta Airlines Flight 191 or Delta Flight 191 was a scheduled flight for the 2nd of August, 1985. Delta Flight 191's origin was Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood International Airport, Florida, the United States, and its destination was Los Angeles International Airport, California, the United States, with a stopover at Dallas or Fort Worth International Airport, Texas, the United States. The aeroplane used was a Lockheed L-1011-381-1 TriStar. The crew and passengers. The captain of this flight was Edward N. Connors Jr., who was 57 years old at the time of the crash. In total, Captain Connors Jr. obtained 29,300 flight hours, with 3,000 of those hours on the TriStar. Captain Connors Jr. was an incredibly qualified pilot, with him serving in the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Air Force, and he also was a pilot during the Korean and Vietnam Wars. That is incredibly impressive. The first officer on this day was Rudolph P. Price Jr., who was 42 years old at the time of the crash. In total, First Officer Price Jr. obtained 6,500 flight hours with 1,200 of those on the TriStar aircraft. He was incredibly knowledgeable on the TriStar aircraft, therefore he was an important component in the cockpit. This flight also had a flight engineer called Nicholas N. Nasik, who was 43 years old. In total, he obtained 6,500 flight hours with 4,500 on the TriStar. Before we continue, the pilots had nicknames that they called each other during this flight. Captain Connors Jr. was Ted, First Officer Price Jr. was Rudy, and Flight Engineer Nasik was Nick. In total, there were 152 passengers on board and 8 flight attendants. The Flight before Delta Flight 191 took off from Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport, the weather forecast read, and I quote, possibility of widely scattered rain showers and thunderstorms. Another weather forecast by another agency read, and I quote, an area of isolated thunderstorms over Oklahoma and northeastern Texas. Remember that Delta Airlines Flight 191 had a stopover at Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport in Texas. 
The pilots were made aware of this, so don't worry. Delta Airlines Flight 191 took off from Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport at 10 minutes past 2 p.m. Central Daylight Time. Whilst Delta Flight 191 was flying past Louisiana, a weather report was handed to the pilots and it mentioned that the weather was changing and was actually getting worse in terms of clouds and rain near the Gulf Coast. As a result, the flight crew decided to deviate a little bit from their flight path in order to avoid this weather. Delta Airlines Flight 191 was put into a holding pattern for about 10 to 15 minutes, and whilst they were in this holding pattern, the crew of Flight 191 received an Automatic Terminal Information Service, or ATIS, broadcast. The system or broadcast showed the conditions that were around the airport. After those 10 to 15 minutes, the Fort Worth Air Route Traffic Control Center cleared Delta Flight 191 and instructed them to descend to 25,000 feet or 7,600 meters. After Delta Flight 191 descended to 25,000 feet or 7,600 meters, the Fort Worth Air Traffic Control instructed Delta Flight 191 to descend to 10,000 feet or 3,000 meters and to change their flight heading to 250 degrees. A few moments afterwards, Captain Connors Jr. told the air traffic control that there was a storm cell in front of the Blue Ridge route that they were using to land at Dallas-Fort Worth International. Due to this, the air traffic controller decided to give Delta Flight 191 a new heading. The new heading that Delta Flight 191 received gave them permission to fly directly to Blue Ridge and to descend to 9,000 feet or 2,700 meters. The crew accepted this and were actually preparing to descend to 2,700 meters. However, a few minutes later, flight engineer Nick noticed that there was a rain all over Dallas-Fort Worth International. After this, the Fort Worth Air Traffic Control transferred Delta Flight 191 to the Dallas-Fort Worth Air Traffic Control. The Dallas-Fort Worth Air Traffic Control instructed the crew to descend to 7,000 feet or 2,100 meters. The crew did just that. Two minutes later, the Delta-Fort Worth Air Traffic Control instructed Delta Flight 191 to deviate from their new flight path by 10 degrees and to slow their airspeed to 180 knots, 210 miles per hour or 330 kilometers an hour. The crew of Delta Flight 191 accepted this request and started their descent. Whilst they were descending, the crew started to prepare the aircraft for landing at Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. The Dallas-Fort Worth Air Traffic Control cleared Delta Flight 191 to descend to 5,000 feet or 1,500 meters. After they announced this, the Dallas-Fort Worth Air Traffic Control let the crew know that there was rain developing northwards of the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport and told them that the airport was using an Instrument Landing System, or ILS. ILS is an instrument system, of course, and it works as follows. Let me paint a picture. So you are a pilot and you want to land at an airport. But there is bad visibility or poor communication so you cannot talk to the air traffic control and you cannot see the airport. 
So the airport itself that you're trying to land on has these structures before the runway itself. These structures send signals to the outside sensors of the aeroplane. These signals guide the plane to the runway. Thus, you land. This is, of course, incredibly simplified. It is way more complicated than what I just said, but for the purpose of this episode, just keep all of this in mind. Captain Connors Jr. let the Dallas-Fort Worth Air Traffic Control know that they were flying at 5,000 feet or 1,500 meters. The air traffic controller told the crew that they should land on runway 17 left. Now, Delta Flight 191 was actually in a quote-unquote holding pattern with a Learjet 25 and an American Airlines aeroplane in front of the Learjet 25. Due to the bad weather, the air traffic controller asked the captain of the American Airlines aeroplane whether or not he could see the airport itself. He responded that he could not see the airport due to a rain shower. A few seconds later, the air traffic controller instructed Delta Flight 191 to slow down to 170 knots, 200 miles per hour or 310 kilometers an hour to change their heading to 270 degrees and to descend to 3,000 feet or 910 meters. After they descended to 3,000 feet or 910 meters, the air traffic controller guided the flight towards runway 17 left. The Learjet 25 was to land on the same runway that Delta Flight 191 was to land on. Runway 17 left. This aeroplane encountered heavy rain and low visibility, but even though they encountered these dangerous conditions, the Learjet aircraft landed safely. However, they did not report these conditions to the air traffic control because they claimed it was just rain and nothing else. Either way, the flight crew lowered their landing gear and extended their flaps. At this point, Delta Flight 191 was at 1,000 feet or 300 meters. The flight was still going way too fast and thus landing would be difficult and bumpy. The angle of attack was over 30 degrees and the pitch angle started to increase. Delta Flight 191 was descending at 50 feet or 15 meters per second. As a result, the aeroplane's ground proximity warning started sounding. Seeing as though Delta Flight 191 was losing altitude and now going too slow, the crew decided to abort the landing and attempt to land again. First Officer Rudy, or Price Jr., pulled the nose of the aeroplane up, which slowed the plane further. Now, Delta Flight 191 was descending at 10 feet or 3 meters per second. Due to this, the aeroplane's landing gear started hitting a field which was 6,336 feet or 1,931 meters north of the runway. Delta Flight 191 was dangerously close to the Texas State Highway. Delta Flight 191 hit a street light and then the nose gear hit the Texas Highway. This aeroplane skidded across the road at 200 miles per hour or 320 kilometers an hour. The aircraft was skidding southwards and hit two more lights. Whilst this plane was on the highway that fast, the aeroplane's left horizontal stabilizer, engine pieces, parts of the wing and nose gear came off. A fire started on the left wing whilst it was skidding on the ground. 
Delta Flight 191 crashed into two water tanks which were on the airport's property. As soon as the plane hit the water tanks, it engulfed in flames. A whole fireball. The fuselage from the nose to row 34 of the plane was destroyed and the fireball itself started from the tail section of the airplane. 127 people, including all of the pilots, were killed. One person on the ground was also killed. The Investigation The safety body that was in charge of the investigation was the National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, seeing as though the actual crash happened in the United States. Now I'm going to be reading the probable cause of this whole crash according to the official document. So the probable cause of the actual accident according to the National Transportation Safety Board goes as follows. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable causes of the accident were the flight crew's decision to initiate and continue approach into the cumulonimbus cloud which they observed to contain visible lightning, the lack of specific guidelines, procedures and training for avoiding and escaping from low-altitude wind shear, and the lack of definitive real-time wind shear hazard information. This resulted in the aircraft's encounter at low altitude with a microburst-induced severe wind shear from a rapidly developing thunderstorm located on the final approach course. Basically, what happened is that Delta Flight 191 flew into a cumulonimbus cloud and basically this cloud kind of has these water droplets that go into the engines of the aeroplane which thus destroys the engine and thus losing power and thrust which is why when first officer Rudy tried to recover the aeroplane he couldn't because there was just too much moisture in the engines thus switching everything off. Also, they could not climb anymore since they were at the lowest. They were at a thousand feet or 300 meters. That is incredibly low to try and abort a landing. Overall, this whole crash was due to pilot error. I'm sure the crew or the pilots were not really that trained as to how to use the instrument landing system. So I think that also played a part in the crash. Now, the recommendations set out by the NTSB, they read as follows. The most significant recommendations were issued following the accidents at Boston Logan on December 17, 1973, at John F. Kennedy on June 24, 1975, at Philadelphia on June 23, 1976, and at New Orleans on July 9th. 1982. Specifically, these recommendations address the needs for wind shear forecasting to define better the conditions conductive to microburst development and to inform dispatchers and pilots when these conditions are present, as well as when there are a wind shear potential involving non-frontal systems. Improved communications between the weather service, air traffic controllers, and pilots to ensure that pilots are provided the most current forecasts and existing conditions for planning flights, landing approaches, and departures. Improved real-time detection of wind shear conditions by 1. 
use of the LLWAS to its maximum potential by ensuring optimum placement of the nanometer array and optimum software alarm logic and number two expeditious development and installation of microwave Doppler radar equipment at airports located in areas of high microburst risk. Number three, pilot training which stresses avoidance of wind shear and discusses the meteorological conditions conductive to the development of wind shears, particularly convective wind shears. Pilot training programs which, number one, discuss aerodynamic performance problems associated with wind shear penetrations as well as simulations of wind shear encounters during all low altitude phases of flight. And number two, stress the need for rapid recognition and response by using all of the airplane's performance capability. And number three, address the effects of an out-of-trim speed condition on the control forces needed to use the aeroplane's performance. Finally, development, certification and installation of airborne equipment which can provide the pilot early warning of wind shear encounters and optimize the logic of command guidance instruments to enhance the pilot's response to the encounter. And that is the end of today's episode. It has been a long one. I really do hope that you enjoy it because I did enjoy researching this one. It's really interesting to actually go back in history and try to like find out as to how these crashes actually happened. And when I say history, I mean like the 90s and the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, the 50s, because then we can compare and be like, hmm, you know what? Now we don't actually have this problem of like, microbursts and all of that because the training has improved the aeroplanes have improved and like now air travel is safer but that is the end of today's episode i really do hope that you enjoyed it do not forget to follow us on the platform that you're listening to us on do not forget to subscribe to our youtube channel called a crash investigation the podcast really planning to do more things with that channel soon But thank you so much for listening once again and I will catch you in the next one. Cheers!